Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, well, welcome. Happy Lord's Day. We are in Genesis 31. I'm sure we've answered all the questions for all the chapters of Genesis up to this point of nothing left that we're wondering about. So Tabitha's greeting us from the kitchen. So uh, let's pray and then let's read the text together. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning where we are able to gather in your house with your people to pour over your word together. We pray that you'd be with us this morning as we read, as we discuss, as we consider and question. We pray that you would, by your spirit, give us insight into your word, that we might know you better, that we might know more of ourselves, that we might know more of the grace that you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus, that we might better understand the story of our own redemption. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Genesis 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped spotted and mottled for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners for he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan, his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. 
He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. But now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By the day, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. They sat there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he called it Galid and Mizpah, 
where he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, God and see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. What do you see and what questions do you have? Well, I guess I would start with that. Verse, I think it's seven. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So when the circumstances are completely, totally out of your control, that God's sovereign hand still is at play. And that even when it seems everyone else is working against you, God's plan always comes to fruition. You don't have to have tomorrow figured out. It's interesting that, um, that Laban was, did not regard him with favor as before, which is very, he's, he's had a very ironic way of showing favor up to this point with cheating and deceit and changing wages. Yeah, yeah what's the nature of this favor that, that Laban is showing him? And how bad has it gotten that Jacob is able to detect a change? <laughs> Given the way the narrator has kind of presented Laban, up to this point, those two things together, especially the, the changing or the, the morphing relationship between Laban and Jacob, how does what we're seeing unfold in the life of Jacob relate to things we've seen or discussed earlier in the book of Genesis? Okay, Jacob and Esau a little bit. Yeah. Can you develop that a little bit more? Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew and just despised it and didn't really care. Later, he cares about it. And then later, he was blessed by Isaac, or should have been blessed by Isaac, but Jacob took the blessing, and then he gets really mad. So I wonder if it's with Laban that all of a sudden all of his cattle are weak or don't look good and look so belong to Jacob, and that's a bigger deal than... Okay. What drives the plot for the book of Genesis? If we, if we wanted to capture a, like a central theme, what would we identify as that central theme for the book of Genesis? Okay, I'm going to guess, but people, tr people try to take things into their own control as opposed to waiting on God to move. That's certainly part of it. When they're taking control, what are they trying to do? Make what God said is going to happen, happen. And what did God say was going to happen? Well, Jacob was supposed to, is supposed to be favored. That whole lineage through all of them. That whole lineage going back how far? To Abraham. Yeah, that's a trick question, right? Like, back to Adam. But yes, Abraham in particular. If we look, at, if we look back at Genesis 12, 
The promises given to Abraham, Genesis 1 to 11, are essentially prelude. They're introducing us to Abraham. There's a whole lot more going on than that, for sure. But then the promises to Abraham, given in chapter 12, drive the narrative moving forward. And we want to keep that before us, even in the midst of individual chapters. So what are those promises to Abraham? I would see it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and a piece of it comes up again in verse 7. Right now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in verse 3, so much of what drives the story in individual episodes, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 7 clarifies that, that the land that he goes to is part of that promise as well. So we, we talked about three P's that kind of boil that down, right? People, place, and presence. That God's going to make him into a great people, that he's going to give him a place that he's prepared for them, and his presence is going to go with him. And that presence is going to manifest primarily in his protection and blessing. And so we saw that play out very slowly over the life of Abraham. And so much of the plot is driven by Abraham struggling to believe that promise and trying to find ways to make that promise happen because it seems like God is making it happen awfully slow. And, and we've talked about sometimes we don't give Abraham enough credit because we don't add up the years over which this is taking place, right? He's 75 when he's given the promise, he's 100 when Isaac is born. But that's driving the plot here as well, as we've been tracing that promise forward across generations. And we, we come to realize this promise is going to be succeeded, right? Abraham will be succeeded, not by Ishmael, but by Isaac. Okay, how's it going to move forward from there? Is it going to manifest in both Jacob and Esau? or only Jacob or Esau. And of course, the narrator is focused on Jacob. And so we're thinking, okay, it's going to come through Jacob, but how is it going to come through Jacob? Because he's out of the land and he's subservient to his father-in-law. And we feel the tension with him about when is he going to provide for his own household? And what about the blessing that Isaac pronounced over him? Is that going to come to anything? Or is it going to be just words? And now we're at a crisis moment where he is trying to flee, and it seems like the Lord has blessed him with great wealth as he leaves, but he is being pursued by one who was a powerful ally and is now a very powerful enemy. Laban's not boasting when he says to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. But what's going to become of all of those promises? 
right? Now, Jacob is fleeing in obedience to the Lord's command. I'm sure he, he's been itching to go for a long time. But what sparks his departure is the Lord telling him to go, right? And this is the Lord who had told him to go into the land, that he would be with him as he did. And so now we're, we're coming back around at the end of that, and we're seeing if whether what God promised him when he saw the ladder ascending and descending, right, at Bethel, whether God is actually going to keep that promise. And in his treatment, in Laban's treatment of Jacob, we've seen that the Lord will bless those who bless you because he tremendously blessed Laban. But as Laban's disposition toward Jacob changed, so did God's disposition toward Laban. And now the Lord has blessed Jacob at Laban's expense instead of to Laban's benefit. So bear, always keep in mind these promises to Abraham. As we move further and further away from Genesis 12 in the Pentateuch, we'll see that those promises, right, they're driving the narrative of the patriarchs, but they also are driving the story of the whole first five books of the Bible, which makes it really interesting that we end Deuteronomy with Abraham's house made into a great nation with God's presence among them manifest in a tabernacle, but not yet in the land, not in the place God's prepared for them, which is a really interesting to be continued at the end of Deuteronomy. But anyway, that's, that's for another day. Jacob says, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Is this declaration of the nature where had he found the household gods, he really, in righteousness, should have killed Rebecca or is, um, Rachel, sorry. And which also begs a question later when he eventually figures it out, we assume he did. Should he have put her to death? Was that the right thing to do or was this just he spoke rashly, and this wasn't an oath, and he's off the hook. What verse is that? Uh, that is in verse 32. I think, on the one hand, it just serves as a strong protest of innocence. Like, whatever, Laban, that's crazy, right? Whoever you find them with, they should die. Like, there's no way anybody in my household has taken them. But it is stronger than that, and it does mirror the language of an oath. So, but we see statements like this treated in this kind of, well, let's work that out kind of manner at other places in Genesis. Like we'll see it with uh, in the Joseph story as well. Is it Japheth in Judges who says that the first one who greets him at his gate will be put to death and maybe he's thinking of livestock, but it's his daughter? Jephthah, yeah. Jephthah's rash vow, which I have all kinds of questions about, including there's provision for sacrifices to make if you make a rash vow. So why didn't he just do that? Well, yeah. Here, clearly the narrator knows where they're hidden. But at what point that was made known to other people, don't know. Um, verse 7 or 10, when the angel comes... And lots of times when human beings encounter angels, they're fearful. 
There's no mark of fear, number one. And then, I'm not looking at the scripture, but right after that, God identifies himself. So, that was interesting. And then the, the other point, not necessarily collect, connected here, is that right, Laban is a polytheist. Laban is not a believer in the one true God. As the one true God. Yet, Jacob makes covenants with him. And Jacob marks the place of the covenant with a human structure. Rocks, be it. And one calls it one name and another calls it another name. And I'm thinking the interaction with non-believers. Curious. Yeah. So covenant, broadly speaking, like covenant was the way of entering into agreements with other people in the ancient world broadly. And, and the shape, well, covenants served as the form of contractual obligation that they undertook in the ancient world. And there were different kinds of covenants for different situations, right? You could enter into a covenant where two equal parties are making an agreement, and that seems to be the case here. You could enter into a covenant where a, a conquering nation would offer you <clears throat> protection in exchange for certain things like obedience and taxes and calling up an army in the event that your overlord wanted them. Um, and so... It's certainly here in a God-focused covenant and a, dare I say, secular covenant. I would put it differently in that the division that we make between the religious world and the secular world did not exist for them. So from Jacob's perspective, he probably wants to make a covenant in the Lord's name, and not in the name of any other God, which Laban seems to have been willing to go along with, even though Laban clearly believed in other gods as well. How about the angel and the God references? Well, in verse 3, there's, there's very little described for us. It just says, the Lord said to Jacob, return. And we keep going. It's in his conversation with Rachel and Leah that he says, right, Jacob describes uh, his interaction with the angel in verses 11 and 12. Right? Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes, right, and, and these things, and then go. So we don't get the narrator describing for us the extended scene like we do in other places where Jacob is confronted by the angel and responds in fear. All Jacob needs to communicate at this point is what the angel said, why we need to go. And they're like, okay, right. It probably wouldn't, it wouldn't have served either his purpose in speaking to Leah and Rachel or the narrator's purpose to give us an extended description of the fear that he felt in that interaction or any of that. It doesn't mean Jacob was not wowed by that interaction. It's just that, that that part is not narrated for us. So we're not just changing horses for lack of a better reference. Then when he says an angel spoke and then it says the Lord said. Are you looking at the difference between verse three and then his description? And the angel of God said. Yeah. 
No, that's that's not. And then thirteen. Yep. I am the God of Bethel. Where you anointed a pillar and made uh, a vow to me. Yeah, I'm splitting hairs, but I'm just trying to figure out who's speaking here. Who's what words are and are offered by whom? Well, what we see consistently throughout the Old Testament is that the angel of the Lord is able to speak in the name of the Lord with such authority that he can speak the Lord's words in first person. And also in, in many interactions, the angel of the Lord accepts worship due to the Lord. But which is one reason that many people look on these interactions with the angel of the Lord as the Lord himself or, or Jesus manifesting himself in human form before the actual incarnation. Because other angels, they don't, they don't do that. In fact, they'll expressly, like if somebody falls down before them, they'll lift them up and say, you idiot, get off the ground. I'm just a creature like you, right? But the angel of the Lord is in a different class and interacts as though he is the Lord himself, which leaves us with all kinds of questions. It's interesting that Rachel wanted to steal the idols. Right? I mean, she's been hanging around with Jacob for some years now. And Jacob presumably is a man of God and chosen by God to carry out this sovereign plan of God. Um, But in 14 years, it doesn't appear that he's made much um, headway as it relates to the influence of his spouse. That's striking to me. Uh, regarding the idols and her taking them, could it be, because the daughters say, I mean, is all that we have, like, he's taken everything, all that it was his is ours. So is it more like, these are valuable, they should be ours, and they should pass to us, and we're going to go ahead and, and take this as our, our what to do us? Yeah, so with the idols, there's, there's several possible motivations, and even layers like there may be more than one motivation at work Um, and what's deeply frustrating about that is it's not spelled out for us why'd she take them i don't know did she take them because they're made of precious metals and so they are something that could be melted down and right she could liquefy assets literally uh, and have more spending money when they get back into Canaan? Is she taking them because she wants to cut out from under uh, her father any source of confidence on which he might rely? Like she knows they're important to him, and so she's going to take them away. Um, is it on the level of, right, when a, when a relative passes away and we're, we're dealing with their household and their goods and and what to do with the estate and they have this this lucky plate you know that they always had out at this at special family dinners and it was important um, and it seemed to bring good luck to the family and so now siblings are fighting over who gets the lucky plate because of the significance that it has for the family I don't know. Could it be that she's still a polytheist herself and by golly, she wants as 
as many divinities on her side as possible. And so she takes them too. We just don't know. It could be any of those. It could be something we haven't even considered. Uh, we do know that as a result of her taking them, Laban is even more fired up than he would otherwise have been, and that not all of his accusations are wrong. Because indeed, someone in Jacob's party has stolen his household gods. Yeah, it was really interesting that, that uh, Laban had the power and could have overtaken him, indeed killed him, and then all of a sudden, Jacob's bowing I mean, it's like, I'll tell you how it's going to be. Yeah, bear in mind that Jacob is departing under the command of the Lord who said he would go with him and protect him and bless him and has indeed done so and now has told them to leave. And Laban expressly said, that God appeared to me and told me not to mess with you. And so that probably gives Jacob a little more confidence in confronting Laban than he might otherwise have had. But this covenant thing, this covenant that they make, right? This is not just making an agreement and shaking hands. There's so much more to it than that. They recognize in their relationship with one another that each one is powerful and each one is able to inflict harm on one another. But their agreement is not simply on the level of I'm going to contractually obligate myself to not call up an army and come invade your territory because you're going to agree to not do the same thing to me. In a covenant like this, I mentioned there's, for them, there's no separation between religious sphere and worldly sphere. They are making this covenant in the Lord's name. So he is not merely serving as a witness to that agreement, but in entering into that covenant, they are calling down certain curses upon themselves should they break that covenant. So that they are saying, if I determine to violate this agreement and indeed cross over to you to do harm, may the Lord enact. Whatever curses are given as provisions in this covenant, which are not spelled out for us, but were always part of the agreement, may the Lord enact curses upon me to prevent that from happening and to protect you from my violation of the covenant. Right, those are clauses that we don't, we don't have, right? We have lawyers who are, are given entirely to contract law into recovering losses, determining whether contracts have been violated and to what extent and what is owed by one party to another on the basis of violated contracts. In the ancient world, they entrusted that entirely to the gods. Right? We saw with, with Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham knew once the Lord started to describe things, Abraham knew exactly what was expected. Right? And so Abraham gets all the animals the Lord tells him to get, and he cuts them up. Right? And it's one half the animal on this side, one half the animal on that side. And it creates this bloody alleyway 
And this is the kind of covenant usually enacted by someone who's conquered another people. And the one who is conquered has certain obligations placed upon them. And they walk through the pieces of those animals, visually proclaiming, if I don't do what I'm agreeing to in this covenant, may I be like these animals. And that was the, the, the deeply powerful thing in Genesis 17, because the Lord put Abraham to sleep. Sorry, 15, Genesis 15. The Lord puts Abraham to sleep. With a supernatural sleep. It's the same word used to describe the sleep that comes on Adam before the rib is taken to create Eve. And what passes between the pieces is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Just like the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that leads Israel through the wilderness. But that covenant is similar. We see more of its aspects in that chapter than we do here was just described in brief where they enter into a covenant and they set up a pillar and a heap and the heap of stones was a reminder that they made a covenant in this place. And the pillar actually would have been like a stone monument with all of the provisions of the covenant carved into it so that it could be read by anyone who passed that way. No. Is there a distinction that should be brought out relative to what Laban called the covenant and what um, Jacob called the covenant? So the difference is their native languages. Oh, okay. Laban is from Aram, right? Laban the Aramean. And so the name that he gives it is Aramaic. And Jacob, Jacob probably spoke Aramaic too. But the people Moses is telling the story to spoke Hebrew. And so the name that Jacob gives it is Hebrew, but the names mean the same thing. I mean, heap of witness. So? This is an aside, I suppose. When that language shift have taken place? Because these, these patriarchs, these are all from the same family as Laban originally. So where did the language shift take place? That's a good question that I don't have a good answer for. We know it happened. And the particulars of when it happened, we are uncertain of. We've got people who've researched that and have guesses. And I don't have, I don't remember their guesses off the top of my hand. Off, well, my hand or my head. We, we know absolutely that that shift has definitely taken place by the time of David. Uh, it appears certainly to have taken place by the time of the Exodus. Um, the language, some of the features of Hebrew at the time of the Exodus that we see elements of it in the Pentateuch, they're clearly an earlier stage of Hebrew. Some of the Hebrew is weird in relation to later generations. But almost certainly the language that Abraham spoke as he came out of Mesopotamia would have been Aramaic, not Hebrew. But the language that the Hebrews speak as they leave Egypt is Hebrew. So where in that time period in between they made that linguistic change, don't know. Aramaic and Hebrew are related to one another. It's not like Chinese and Russian. I go back to when you were explaining the angel of God and his characteristics and the fact that he can accept worship and he can also speak the word of God. Um, in my mind, I kind of, it sounded as though it was the identity of the Holy Spirit. Now, is there somewhere, you know, as we would 
associate Jesus Christ to the Son and the Father, the Creator to, to God. Is there is that correct, or is there some other identifying characteristic or of the Holy Spirit? I think because he often manifests himself in physical form, it's more common to relate him to the Son of God than the Spirit of God. Okay. So, it's not as tidy as just being able to say, well, this is always Jesus, which raises questions too. Like, what does it mean to have a pre-incarnation incarnation? So... But the closest to a tidy answer is probably to see the angel of the Lord as usually the son manifesting himself and representing the father. Because a, a special angel wouldn't be able to accept worship, but the son would. Why does Laban feel the need to go rescue his gods? <laughs> does he have intent to still worship them later, or just melt them down and cast new ones? Or... That's an excellent question and is probably part of what the narrator is doing as, uh, as Laban's gods are able to be carried off by Rachel and hidden in a, a camel's saddlebag. Are they supposed to like, just like minor gods, like just watch the sheep or whatever? They can't even manifest, like do anything to demonstrate where they are when Laban is looking for them and is in the same room with them. So they are definitely absolutely being shown as powerless. How difficult is it for him to just replace them? I mean, can you just go carve another one? Yeah. I mean, presumably he could just go carve another one. Probably they were expensive and he doesn't have nearly as much in his bank account as he did say, six years ago, they would have been very costly to replace. So this is not a title like uh, Saul's daughter, first daughter, had that was perhaps as big as a bed. Yeah, I mean, these could be hidden in a saddlebag, so it's, it's not like Dagon and his temple falling over, so. Yeah, because presumably she was sitting on him when he came into her tent to yeah. search, because she was like, oh, I can't get up right now. Like, sorry, I'm pregnant. I, I can't. I don't feel like standing up at the moment. Why did, did Laban add in his covenant that, Jacob, you can't take any wives besides my daughters? I mean, was that because he suddenly cared for his daughters? He was trying to put Jacob into a box? Like, why? Well, that seemed kind of out there. It does seem at the last moment that he does show some fatherly care for his daughters beyond just trying to get rich off of them. So, and there's that parallels provision that we have in the Mosaic law, right? That if you, if you take a second wife, you can't, you can't stop providing for your first wife. You can't, you can't write her son out of the will if she, if her son was born first. Do you think Laban is worse off than before Jacob came? Like, because under Jacob's care, his flocks increased, things went well for him. So is he... Now is Jacob taking away with him more than what came to Laban under his care? He's certainly worse off now than he was before he sought to manipulate Jacob and entrap him with his manipulation of his wages. Whether he's worse off altogether 
than he was before Jacob came. I don't know. We do get the impression from what his daughters say that anything he would have gotten from selling them is all spent. So he is out a couple of daughters and their servants without the ability to recover the economic benefit of giving them to another man and accepting a bride price. But he enters the money. He's better off than that. He could, in a strategic sense, overpower them. That suggests that maybe he's not as well off, but he's still pretty well off. Well, they are fleeing from Laban's home territory where he has his complete network of kinship, right? his relationships with all of his neighbors, their willingness to come to his aid just as he would to theirs. Whereas Jacob is cut off from that and is part of why he wants to go back. All right, it's 1039. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the questions it raises, causes us to consider more deeply. We pray that it would, that you would, by your word and spirit, invite us more deeply into your word, that we might learn more of you and more of ourselves. We pray that you would help us to read toward the New Testament, that as we consider the stories of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and his brothers, that we would see in the story of your work in their lives the beginning of our redemption and the consistent way in which you have cared for your people in all times and places. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.